I'm Tim Rogers, lead pastor here at Grace Point Church. Let's see if I can do this more gracefully than I did last week. There we go. All right. Um, Thank you for being here in person and for masking and socially distancing. Really appreciate that. And for being online, thank you for joining us live right now and on uh, social media platforms later, listening to the podcast later. Thank you for doing that. I'm glad to have you here. You're meeting us in part six of a six-part series called Deeply Undivided. And to finish the series off, I wanted to take you back to the year 1990. How many of you are alive in 1990? Look at that. Look at that. How many of you think that time belongs in a museum somewhere? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's not funny at all. Okay, the year 1990, I was um, a freshman at Peckley Valley High School and came in from the Caribbean, I was a missionary kid, and I didn't know what I was doing at all. I don't know what freshman really does, but I remember being very nervous. Um, I didn't know anybody uh, in the school. I don't think I knew a single person in the school, and I had a different accent, and um, I had hair, actually a lot of hair, kind of wavy and very tan and all that. Um, and I remember heading to the lunchroom, um, and I had my little brown bag because I packed a lunch because I didn't know what was going to go on in the cafeteria. Never been in a U.S. cafeteria before. It was very different where I grew up for lunches. It just was nothing like what we did here. And I knew I was getting near to the cafeteria when I could hear a song which I didn't know or couldn't identify at the time, but later came to know is the anthem of the high school cafeteria and his Pink Floyd song that says something like this, we don't need no education. And it goes on and on and on and on and on about that over and over. And I think the game was to rush to get to the cafeteria first to get that in the jukebox to play that first. And so we could hear that, you know, beat and, and those tunes across the, uh, the cafeteria. It was our, our claim to freedom in the prison of school, I guess is what we felt like. And as I'm walking there, I'm hearing this beat. I'm like, I'm getting near to the lunchroom and I could feel the anxiety in me rising, walking down the hall alone, not just the way it was, but walking down the hall, wondering what will I get when I cross the threshold here and turn the corner. And you turn the corner into a lunchroom one that I'd never experienced before, hundreds of people sitting around their own tables. And as you get in there, all of a sudden you realize, shoot, like I need to find a seat. And the sooner I sit down, then the less obvious I will feel in this space, right? But I don't know who to, I don't know who to sit with. <laughs> I don't know. There's all these tables and there's some chairs, but I know that some of these people have their friends planning to come. And so when I make quick eye contact, you can tell immediately, is this a welcoming table or not a welcoming table? And I realized after a little while that in Peckway Valley, at least, and I think in many schools at that time, there are categories of people. We had our um, jocks, which I didn't know about what that meant. Now I do. We had our heads, which was a very interesting language, right? I think that meant metalhead, but it was funny to call someone a head. Yeah, he's a head, she's a head. We had our goth, believe it or not, back then as well. We had our geeks or dorks. I'm not sure what it was. Nerds. It wasn't wasn't dorks, it was nerds, um, and prep people as well. And then you begin, as I am walking in, I didn't realize it, but that is what was happening all across the cafeteria. In all the tables that were there, you had your people gathered by little groupings, gathered by little tribes, gathered by little ideologies, sitting with one another, looking up as I'm walking through the cafeteria, making eye contact quick, and then going back to their meal, or inviting me to their table. And finally, as I got like halfway through the cafeteria, probably just sweating from nervousness about where can I go, I finally was invited just by a glance and a little wave by someone, his name was Scott, he had a friend named Ryan, to come and sit at their table. And I will tell you, it felt incredibly good to be able to find a seat at someone's table. And all of a sudden, all the anxiety of what happened coming through the doors finally kind of began to 
fade away as I began to take a bite out of my, I think, peanut butter and jelly sandwich and maybe my little bag of chips that I had um, and I began to settle in. And so the next day, the next day, you know what I did? I walked in the cafeteria, looked for that table with those people, and I just went to sit there. And you know what I didn't realize at the time? Is I didn't realize this, that I wasn't the only one in the cafeteria feeling this way. I just assumed I was. Because who else came from the Caribbean this year? Everyone else certainly has a seat, right? And it did not take me long to realize, you know, I, I have not only... <laughs> a desire for peace. What I wanted as I'm walking through the cafeteria was I wanted to find rest. I wanted to find a place to call my own. I wanted peace. But once you find that peace, what I needed to realize, and I didn't for a while, is that I'm not just called to peace. I'm not just called to find a place where I can rest. I'm also called to purpose. I'm called to intentionality. I'm called to invitation. I'm called to recognize, you know what? There's another seat right here. And I need to make sure that this table is an inviting table for people even who are very different than me, who may be wandering around the cafeteria themselves wondering, where can I find a seat? Because what I ended up doing is I began to reduce my experience to that which met my needs. I said, I just need to find a seat, forgetting that there are many people. There are many people who have yet to find a seat who could really use a welcome glance, who could really use a kind invitation to come sit at my table. This happens and this story is repeated over and over again in colleges and universities and high schools and middle schools and workplaces and family environments and churches all across our world all the time. And what I love about the scriptures is that we get a picture of what is yet to come. And John, who was a follower of Jesus, he wrote in the book of Revelation, he wrote about what is yet to come, and he gave us as a church a picture of what is yet to come, a beautiful picture of, if you will, if I can use my cafeteria image, a full cafeteria, a full space with people of all different kinds of persuasions and beliefs, worshiping together one God. And here's what he said in Revelation chapter 7. Here's a picture of the beautiful picture of the church. This is, the, this is worship at its best. This is a church at its best. He says this, after this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. All the heads, all the preps, all the jocks, all the nerds, all together, standing before the throne. Not a single person without a spot at the table. And not a single person whose ideologies, whose beliefs, whose language, whose culture, whose viewpoints didn't fit at the table. Now, this is a beautiful picture of what the church will be. Not just what it can be, but what it will be. But you know this is true, and I know this is true, that we don't wake up to future greatness without planning for it today. You know that's true. No one wakes up with $10 million in their bank account just because they hoped that one day they would have that in their bank account. No one wakes up playing in the NBA just because they hoped that they would do that someday. No one wakes up to doing great things until you actually plan on doing them today. And so my question for us as a church is if this is our future, 
a church which has this incredible diversity to it, this incredible um, richness and wideness in God's mercy where every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every people will be represented. What can we do today? How do we begin to act or continue to act in line with our future? What I want to do this morning is in order to get behind this, I want to look at two things. One, I want to take us back in history so that we can move forward to today and ask one final question at the end. I want to take us back in history. I want to go back to the very reason why God offered salvation in the first place. And I want to make sure that as we pull up to our table, and if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I believe you've pulled up to the table that you found a spot, that you have, like I have as a freshman in high school, you found a, a seat. But I don't want for you and I don't want for me for us to get distracted by the peace and comfort we find in the seat that we have. Because this seat wasn't created just that we might have peace. This seat was given to us for a purpose, for a reason that is bigger than ourselves. And that reason I want to trace and track with you through the scriptures. And so, what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to go through the Old Testament and then into New Testament scriptures. I'm going to just reference these passages up here and show them to you. You can track along in your Bible if you want, or you can check it out um, you know, in your phone app or whatever. But I'm going to run through a number of passages this morning because I want, I want us to see what we were designed to be. And this story begins, it really is a story, um, and I think I'm going to move my seat if I can do that. I might bring my seat back. But the story begins in Genesis chapter 17, all the way back at the beginning. Genesis is this, this, opening, this opening book in, in the scriptures. And in Genesis, God gives us a picture of how he wants kind of the world to work and how, you know, the created world exists. And then in the first several chapters, the first dozen chapters, we begin to see God moving intentionally toward his people, particularly around a guy named Abraham or Abram. And in Genesis chapter 12 and then 15, and then now we jump into Genesis chapter 17, God says something and does something with Abram or Abraham that becomes the mother of all covenants or the father of all covenants, depending on how you want to say it. This is a covenant or a way that God has said to, the, to people, all people, that this is how I want to relate to you. This is a, a promise of mine to you, that God comes to Abraham. What we don't see in Genesis 17, which is where I am on the screen right now, but what we don't see in Genesis 17 is what happened in Genesis 15. And then Genesis 15, this is really weird, but it's just the way covenants were made, that animals were taken and cut in two, right? And so there was these animals cut in half. It's kind of gross, but let's, let's deal with it. it was, they were cut in half and set to the side. And in an Old Testament covenant, what you you would do is you would walk together with your covenant partner. Imagine um, buying a house with the bank this way, and the bank takes a, a cow or a bird or whatever it is, and they cut it in half and set it this way, and you walk hand in hand with your mortgage lender through the blood of the animals, the point being, may this happen to me if I break this mortgage agreement with you. Okay, now that might be a, a, a hair dramatic, <laughs> But that is what was happening in the Old Testament. This is what happened in Genesis 15, that these animals were cut in two, and the idea is you walk through the middle of them as a sign to the other person that to the death I will hold this promise, that if I don't hold it, may this happen to me. And it's a symbolic reality. In Genesis 15, 
God did that with Abram, except he told Abram, you go ahead and fall asleep. I'll walk through this alone so that all responsibility of this falls on me. And here's what I want to promise to you, Abram. And he does it in Genesis 17. Abram fell face down and God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. And he says, you will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. You understand, of course, you understand, of course, that nations are very different from one another. Politically, they're structured differently. I'm going to say that again. Politically, politically, they are structured differently. Ideologically, they are formed differently. Worldviews of kids who grew up in this country or that country are very different. And God is saying to Abram, there will be different nations, different people groups who will grow up, who will be informed and who will be influenced in very different ways. And you, Abram, will be the father of many of these nations. And then he goes on to put it this way. He says, I will make you very fruitful. I will make you, I will make nations of you, excuse me, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. You see what I'm highlighting there? I will. God is saying, Abram, this isn't going to be dependent on you. I just want to commit. This is what I'm going to do. Through you, through me coming to you and making this covenant with you, all people will be blessed because of you. He goes on and says it this way. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. See what he says there? I will be their God. All your descendants, I'm going to be their God. And so it can almost be like this. Hey, all your descendants, you've got a spot at the table. <laughs> I'm Abram's descendant. What about you? I've got a spot at the table. And you know the danger and the risk of finding, finally finding a spot at the table is that you get comfortable being at the table. <laughs> like, I think I have arrived, that I have made it. I have my God because I'm of Abram's descent. I am finally ah, at ease. It's great to be at the table. But God is clear with this in Abram. He says in Genesis 22, no, 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 just to be clear, that through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. I don't want you to get too comfortable in your seat. I want you to understand the reason you have a seat, the reason that I'm going to bless you is so that every nation, every people, every person on earth, again, regardless of ideology, political persuasion, racial background, anything, regardless of that, that they will be blessed through you. And so you pull up to this table and God is saying, Abram, you're going to eat. You might eat better than a PB&J sandwich, right? You might eat better than that. But I don't want you just to feed yourself. I do want you to eat. I want you to enjoy the fruit of being at my table. But I also want you to feed others with the food that you've been given. Which is why, in very specific ways, very, which is why, in the Old Testament, in, in Leviticus, God gives some very unique commands to the nation of Israel. That this big idea that you're going to be a blessing to all people comes down very specifically in how Israel will rule their land. And so even relative to food, for example, in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 22, we read this. When you reap... The harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner residing among you. I am the Lord your God. In other words, I'm going to make a nation, and even within the rules and of that nation, I'm going to make laws that make it clear that I want you to give food to the foreigner. I want you to understand you don't just harvest for yourself, that you are to be a blessing to other people on the ground. Which is why, by the way, 
in the story of Ruth in the Old Testament, Ruth gets to do this. That Ruth gets introduced into history, the history of the, of the world, and the history of the, the Bible. Ruth is introduced because she's doing exactly what God has allowed the foreigner, who is Ruth, to do. That God has put into place, say, there is going to be benefit from being part of the nation of Israel. And we want to make sure that everybody knows that there is an empty seat here for you because we want to pull you up to the table. And so Ruth goes out and harvests at the edges of the field. And Boaz, who kind of has a crush on her, says to his workers, leave a little extra on the corner for Ruth. Ruth ends up entering the pages of Old Testament history. And I don't know if you knew this or not, but Ruth ends up being in the lineage of David, King David, great, great man. And whether you put this together or not, what that means for David is that David's great-grandmother finds David, David's great-grandmother, <laughs> I can't get my words out this morning, David, as well as his son Solomon, both have roots, not only in the Jewish race, but also in the black race. The, the Jewish and Hamitic people groups together are part of the lineage of both David and Solomon. So Solomon's mother and great-grandmother and great-great-grandmother all will find their roots in the black race. To which we say this is the diversity, the natural diversity of the biblical revelation. This is the natural diversity of the people of God. That every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every people, everyone in the cafeteria can come. When Solomon ends up rebuilding the temple, he has a prayer. As he's building this temple, he ends up having this big kind of think, I don't know, again, it's an election year, think kind of presidential um, inauguration moment. This is Solomon, if you will, inaugurating the temple. This is a big prayer, a commissioning prayer for the temple. And Solomon prays this in front of the people of Israel. Here's what he prays in 1 Kings 8. He says this, as for the foreigner, I'm jumping into the middle of his prayer, but he's praying for the foreigner. As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, for they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm when they come and pray toward this temple. Then from heaven, then hear from heaven your dwelling place. He says, he's asking God, I want you to pay attention to the foreigner, not just the people at the table, but the people whom you have identified that you want to see come to you. Then he says this, do whatever the foreigner asks of you so that all peoples on earth will know your name and fear you, and as do your own people Israel, and may know that this house I have built bears your name. He's saying, God, would you please fulfill what you wanted to fulfill through the Abrahamic covenant, that all people at all times will come to know you through your people, that people who get a seat at the table have to understand they don't push up to the table for their own benefit just to eat their own food, that we do things for the benefit and blessing of people. This is the nature of salvation. This is why God came to us in the first place. And when it doesn't work, God gets angry. This is a story of the prophets. The Old Testament prophets, the minor prophets, the books, if you read your Bible consistently, you will know these are the books you like to not read because a lot of them don't make sense. They speak in parables and, and riddles. It almost seems like the language is hard to process. Um, it can be weird. But in the Old Testament prophets, a, a large portion of what is pushing their anger 
is that the nation of Israel has stopped seeing their seat at the table as a seat of blessing for other people, that it has turned inward. They have become people who are comfortable at the table, comfortable with the blessing they get, being under the blessing of God, and have stopped reaching out to the people around them and have stopped acting in a just and right way. In fact, Micah puts it this way. Micah says this almost sarcastically. If you're a sarcastic person, you may like the next couple moments here, okay? I'm not saying it's godly. I'm just saying it's in the scriptures, okay? Here's what he says in Micah chapter 6, verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? He's just kind of playing with the nation. Like, hey, you know, what do you think? Is this how I should come to you, God? Should I just come with burnt offerings? Maybe that'll work because you don't seem to be paying attention. Or verse 7, he says, hey, well, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? With How about 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Well, why not? Hey, well, what about, why don't I just offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Why don't I do that? Maybe that would make you happy, God. The sarcasm is dripping off of him as he lays into the people of Israel who were just sitting there in their plenty and in their disdain for other people and the hardness of their heart because they pulled up to the table, they've had enough. And he's saying, well, why don't we just go ahead and offer our firstborn, see if that works for you. And then he says this, and this verse you may already know, but it's this verse comes in the context of his biting criticism of the nation of Israel. He says this, no, 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 no. He has shown you, O mortal, he has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. Act it out. When you see people walking by, you look up with an inviting eye and invite them to your table. Don't just keep eating the food for yourself. Don't try to cover that open seat. You haven't acted in a just and right way, nation of Israel. You haven't done what God's intent was from the very beginning of coming to Abraham. You just haven't done this. Micah's story brings us in Old Testament history to the point where the nation of Israel ends up getting exiled. They get run out of their own land. The Assyrians, the Babylonians take over, and you have these people who are, who are exiled for a whole generation, for years and years. They end up intermarrying Assyrians, Babylonians. They end up intermarrying with other people. And through the course of time, there's a new kind of people group that's formed. And it's in this period of history. And those people are called the Samaritans. The Samaritans are the result of the Jews marrying into other, other groups like the Assyrians, like the Babylonians. And what happens is we open the pages of the New Testament. When Jesus walks on the planet, Jesus now enters a period of history where there are Jews who are hating Samaritans because in that period of history, the Samaritans were seen to be the traitors, the ones who didn't hold to purity, the ones who gave up too easily, the ones who walked away from the temple, the ones who just backed off and took the easy route. They did not hold to what Yahweh should wanted them to do. This was the view of the Jews. They were essentially untouchable. Well, one day, Jesus needed to travel. He needed to travel up through Judea, and so he walks through an area where there are many Samaritans. He could have walked around, which most Jews, any pious Jew, would have walked around. He walked through with his disciples, and as he's walking through, he stops because he's tired, and it's hot in the desert, and he interacts with someone there who's a Samaritan woman. And here's what he says to her. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? And his disciples had gone to the town to buy food. This is a big ask. I want you to understand the significance of this moment. Jesus, a Jewish male at his table, 
see someone wandering through the cafeteria who doesn't belong at his table, according to the Jews, and it's a Samaritan woman, and he reaches out to her. He crosses this bridge, and he asks her a question. It's really simple. Some of us wonder, how do you start conversations with people? I don't know. Here's what Jesus did. He just said, can I have a drink of water? That's about as basic as it gets. He says, will you give me a drink? I'm going to engage you. I'm going to recognize you're in the room, and I want to talk to you. And her response is what you would expect. Here's what she says. The Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Incredulous that he would ask her for a drink. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. You're not supposed to look up from your table when I walk by. You're not supposed to notice that I'm in the room. In fact, you're supposed to snicker at me. You're supposed to, you know, put me down as pretend I'm not here. Hold on. You've asked me something. Maybe you don't know the rules. (laughs) You aren't allowed to do this. Jesus goes on, ignoring her response, and he said to her, he answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Do you see what he's saying? He said, do you understand? I'm giving to you, you, Samaritan woman, living water. The very essence of salvation is available even to the most despised among the Jews. Even to the people that no one else would like, even the people who we think are terrible because they believe this, they've compromised over here, they're immoral over there, they have different background, different skin color, different whatever, different history. Their mama did this and their daddy did that because of their background. They don't belong at the table. Jesus said, I'm about to offer you living water, the same thing that's available to every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every person. If you knew who was here talking to you, you would understand that this living water is available to you. These designations in your mind that you're a Samaritan woman who doesn't deserve to be engaged by a Jewish male, that is wrong. I'm here to challenge it and to invite you to the table. It goes on. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the water is deep, the well is deep, excuse me. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than, and look, she relates with the Jewish people. Are you greater than our father, Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. He's still on this point. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He's still holding out to her, of all people, a Samaritan woman, this tangible gift of salvation. Why? Because this is what salvation is meant to be. Not just a place at the table for me, but a blessing for absolutely everyone, every nation, every race, every tongue, every ideology. Which is why Paul will write this in Galatians 3 when he summarizes how we should see one another. He says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And then he ties it all up really nicely by putting it this way. He said, If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise of where we began our little story this morning. That if you belong to Christ, you're here not because of your parents. You're not here because of your race. You're not here because of where you were born. You're here because you're Abraham's seed, the very essence of salvation that God began as he established this Abrahamic covenant with Abraham, is that salvation, that your seat at the table, my seat at the table, is not just meant for my benefit, 
but for the benefit and blessing of all people at all times. So that when I sit at the table, I don't relate to you because you're white and I'm white. I don't relate to you because you're Republican and I'm Republican. I don't relate to you because you're Democrat and I'm Democrat. I'm not trying to give anything away there. I don't relate to you because of our political ideology. I don't relate to you because of our skin color. But he says, I, I don't want you to ignore that. I'm not asking you to be colorblind. I'm not asking you to pretend that white doesn't exist and black doesn't exist. I'm not asking you to pretend that. I'm asking you to go deeper than that and say, look at it. See the beauty and diversity of it. Just like David, just like Solomon, just like the mixed races that we've seen, even with the Samaritans, even, even with the Samaritans, whom Jesus engaged in, and offered incredible value and equal value and worth to because these distinctions that we have are not enough to keep us from what is the point of the kingdom of God, the richness and diversity that exists when John writes in Revelation 7 where we begin. He says, after this I looked and there before me, there before me was a great multitude, no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Why are they all there? Why, why are they all there? Because this is God's intent from the very beginning. Not just his intent broadly, his plan specifically. That even legally in the nation of Israel, that there would be benefit to being a foreigner. That it would be different from any other nation. That when Solomon prays to God, he says, God, will you please keep at the center of who we are as the people of God? That we are people who reach others. That those will see that you are a God who cares. Despite all of the differences that we have, help us to look past that, not ignore it, but to see it, acknowledge it, and find the beautiful diversity in the room that when Jesus engages a Samaritan woman, he does it with intentionality to remind her, you've got a seat at my table. Because one day, every tribe, every tongue, every nation will worship before the Lamb. It's a powerful, powerful, powerful story of salvation history. That is what we need to never forget, that the blessing of God in your life and in mine, if you call yourself a Christian, is not just for my benefit. I don't get to sit at the table just because I get to be here, but I am invited to the table so that I can remember there's always gonna be an empty seat. So I wanna ask the question here, you know, what can I do? What can I do? Before I answer the what can I do question, I wanna just affirm three things that I think we know. I think we know this. We know that salvation isn't just for me. We know that salvation isn't just for me. The, the scriptures make that pretty, pretty clear, that salvation is invitational, that you're not just saved so that you alone can have eternal life. While that is a result of salvation, it also results in you engaging with the people around you right now, me engaging with the people around me right now to make their world a better place right now, that it's invitational. This is part of the Abrahamic covenant, part of the laws we've seen with the foreigner. We also know this, that we tend, to, we tend toward reduction. My instinct, and maybe you felt this too, I don't know. My instinct back in 1990 when I first walked into Pecker Valley High School, walked down the hallway and heard Pink Floyd and You Don't Need No Education. Number one, I thought, what kind of dumb song is that? Now, once I got past that, I thought, okay, here we are. Here we go. We're, we're going to sit here. My instinct was just to be, I'm so thankful that I can finally sit down and be out of the spotlight. Even though it was probably a spotlight of my own making, I was no longer anxious once I sat down. I found a spot. And then what I did is I reduced the power of the table to what it gave me. Like, ah, this table, there's power here. It gives me a spot. But I forgot that that's not the only power of the table. The power of this table is also 
that it can give someone else a spot. But when I walked into the cafeteria the next day, I didn't really care. <laughs> I didn't really care because I needed a spot. I wanted to find peace. And so we can tend to reduce even salvation to its bare value for me. I can, and I don't know if you can, but we can tend toward reduction. Thirdly, we know this is true, that God's heart is for all people at all times to come to know him. This is what John 4 reminds us, what Galatians 3 reminds us. God's heart is for all people at all times to come to know him. So here's the question I want to ask you in a very practical way. I just want to talk about it for a second then. And is this, who can I invite to my table? Who can I invite to my table? Who can you invite to your table? I don't know if you realize that you have a table. You personally have a table. You have influence. You have friendships. You may be saying, well, I'm not as old as you, Tim. That's probably not true because I'm, I'm really young. <clears throat> but you have a table. You don't need to get older to have a table. I don't care how old you are. You don't have to get older to have a table. You've got a table. You've got friendships right now. You've got influence right now. You've got people you hang out with right now. You have hobbies right now. You have skills right now. You've got sometimes a warm, welcome smile is your table. Some of you are so friendly it kind of scares the rest of us. It's like, like how? You're always friendly. It's your table. You're hospitable more than any of us can ever imagine. That's your table. Some of you are so keen in your business acumen. And that's your table. You're able to see things in a way that the rest of us can't. It's a gift. It's a strength. Some of you have a heart to pray for people, to engage them and care for them, to feel the weight of their struggle. It's your table. Some of you are readers and thinkers. You're quiet, but you're thoughtful. And you can read a room like other people can't because you see the room better than other people do because you're not as busy trying to impress like the rest of us are. It's a gift. It's a table that you have to see who's in the room. I want to encourage you to think about who can you invite to your table with the gifts and talents and strengths that God has given you. Because each of us has both opportunity and experience that God has put in us to use for the salvation purpose of inviting people to the table. Now, I want to say that this invitation... This invitation doesn't have to be profound, which is why I highlighted what Jesus did with a Samaritan woman. What did he do? I uh, can imagine him walking into this town and maybe leaning against the supporting wall right there, seeing this woman come to the well. And he says, hey, can I have a drink of water? He just walked across the room, just walked across a cubicle, just walked across email, just walked across a text message, just sent a note just had a conversation with someone who needs to hear, hey, I care about you. I see you in the room. I see you in the room. I recognize that other people walking by you, recognize there's pain, I recognize there's hurt, I recognize there's some things here that are going to divide us. I recognize maybe we're a different racial makeup. I recognize that we might be different politically. I recognize that. And for that very reason, because I know the church is heading there, I know that there will be a day when every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people will worship before the throne. Because I know that's where we're heading, I'm not just going to wake up one day and find that to be reality. I want to do my part today to be a part of that church that is incredibly diverse in its thinking and its grace. 
I want to encourage you to think about relationships this way. I've been, as I think about relationships that form, you think about the relationship of Jesus and the Samaritan woman that happened just so briefly. As you think about what supports relationships, I've learned that there are maybe more, but I'll just say there are two supporting structures to a good relationship. One is trust and the other is grace. Trust is going to give you the opportunity to believe the best about the other person and grace is going to give you a chance to forgive a whole lot of things. When you have trust and grace in a relationship, there's a whole lot of failure that can pass over top of that relationship. There's a weight to failure, there's a weight to disappointment, there's a weight to that heaviness that when we stop trusting and stop offering grace, the relationship dissipates and falls apart. But when you, have a, when you extend to people both trust and grace in relationship, there can be a whole bunch of junk that they can begin to unload with you and to you because there's a trusting, safe place when you just say, hey, do you need a drink? you need a drink of water? Because I got a spot at my table right here. And at my table... There will come a day when every tribe and every tongue and every nation will worship before the throne. So why don't we get started right now? Please don't wander around the cafeteria anymore. There's a spot at this table. This is a picture of a people who are deeply undivided, a future where the church is at its very best, where we're incredibly diverse, incredibly gracious, incredibly intentional with how we love and care for the people who work with us right now, the family members that we have, the people our kids go to school with, and the futures that lie right in front of us. And so I want to encourage you right now to ask the question, who can you invite to your table? Who is in your room? Who is in your space? Who you can say, you know what? This is my way of simply asking, hey, can you give me a drink of water? I want to reach to you. I want to extend trust. I want to extend grace. Because the church of God at its very best is a deeply undivided people who worship together across racial, political, ideological, personal divisions. And one day we'll worship before the Lamb with every other tribe and every nation and every tongue. So why not? Why not get started right now? Guys, I hope during the season we can continue to keep our eyes up, no matter what, on the future and on what the gospel and the hope of Jesus means for each one of us. I pray that that will be true, that it will be marked by that kind of kindness, that kind of warmth of invitation to your table and to mine for the blessing of all people at all time. All right, will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to be here this morning and to stop and pause and reflect on where we've been in history and understand that from the very beginning of time, you have orchestrated salvation to be for the benefit, not just of us, but for those living around us, that there will be a blessing that flows through Abraham, his descendants, all nations, through the laws that we make, through the way that we worship through the difference we make in our communities, through the racial divides that we bridge, that we recognize we're all of Abraham's seed, all who believe in Jesus, and that one day there is a future where all tribes, tongues, nations will worship before the throne. And so I pray that you would help us to extend both trust and grace in relationship to people very different than us who are in our room. Help us to see who's in our room. Help us to see who's able to be invited to the table, those in our family, those we work with, those our kids go to school with. I pray that you'd help us to be open to kindness that leads to an awareness 
kind of Heavenly Father in whom we serve, kindness that leads us to repentance. Help us not make light of that. So, Father, we thank you for your grace, for your care, for the beautiful plan of salvation. We come under that, we're grateful for it, and give us courage to act in it, even this week. We love you. We thank you for the time we can share together. In Jesus' name we pray.